and Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's Stick Talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. Hello and welcome once again to the Tap in Time podcast. This is episode 14 and I'm Victor. I'm Gene. I'm Claire. And I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Glenn. And there you heard it. We have a guest this time by the name of Glenn Poorman. I think many of you have heard of Glenn. Glenn is probably best known in the stick community because he is the man behind the Interlochen Stick Seminar that happens every two years that many of us have been to and that if you have not been to, you should go to. Anyway, hey, thanks a lot for joining us, Glenn. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you guys asking me. <laughs> Did you hear that? He said it's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure. <laughs> he doesn't know us yet. <laughs> it's only just begun. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, so Glenn, uh, so tell you what, why don't we uh, start off by maybe getting a little bit of your background in music and how the stick came into your life whenever that may have happened. Uh, we'd like to hear oh, a little boy. bit about you. All righty. Well, my background in music is, well, it's been my entire life. My mom was a musician. My dad was a music lover, but he didn't play. And uh, my mom's grandmother was a musician also. She taught voice at the Detroit Conservatory of Music. So it's been in my family my entire life. And I, I took up the horn in grade school, like a lot of kids, and studied saxophone through college and also piano. And I came really close to getting a degree in music and sort of switched gears right at the last minute when I realized that I probably was not going to make any money. So <laughs> you're living at home. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. And my, and my parents were actually, uh, it was interesting because my parents were actually completely behind me switching gears, even though it meant a couple more years of college. Cause I went into computers instead. And that back then, you know, they looked at the writing on the wall and they knew that Amen. there was a future there. Amen. So, I was, how old were you when that happened? If you don't mind me asking. I was probably 18, 19. Oh. That, so I didn't get that until I was about 28. 80s. I was about 20, 27. I think no, I was 25, 26. And I was like, there's no money in this. <laughs> well, there's not yeah, as much money. Well, the funny thing is I never really thought about it. That's the thing. It's like being a musician and being a band kid was pretty much what I did. So when I went to college, that just continued into college. And at some point somebody said, well, what are you going to do after college is over. And I just kind of went, wait a minute, what? <laughs> so you know, that's when I, that's when I kind of started to think, you know, it's like, well, you could become a band director. I didn't want to do that. I could become a classical performer. I wasn't good enough to do that. So, you know, I just went the other direction and I was really fortunate because it was 1982 and I had a roommate in the town where I came from. Nobody had ever touched computers. You know, it was just a sort of a burgeoning thing. And and I had a roommate who had two older brothers that worked for Digital Equipment Corps, which was, you know, one of the companies back in the 70s that they made movies about, you know, about the, the hackers and the geniuses building these computers. And two of those guys were his brothers. So but he didn't work there. He was he, he was in college with me and he was studying computer science and he had a PC in our apartment. He, he was like the only computer student at Eastern Michigan that didn't have to go to the lab to do his work. We had a computer in the apartment. Um, and uh, he started showing me how to program, and I just kind of had a bit of a knack for it. And I told my mom, and she said, you know what? That's not a bad way to go if you want to 
if you want to switch gears. So I did. But I never stopped being a musician, you know, and, and I kept doing that. And that was about the time I started playing guitar, too. And I started to get into a lot of rock bands. And that sort of led to the same story a lot of people tell, which is going to see King Crimson, <laughs> you know, and, and saying, what the hell is that thing? And, and yeah. that was really cool. But um, I checked it out and looked into it. And for a college student at the time, the price tag on it was that just, I just hung up the phone and that was the end of that. It's like 600 and, bucks. It's like not yeah. cheap, right? <laughs> until, until about, until about 1999 when I, I started checking into it again. What brought it to mind? Well, it was a couple of things that brought it to mind. I was playing in a band then, and there was another band that we used to do a lot of shows with in Detroit. The band was called um, The Brothers from Another Planet. They were a really good band. And the lead singer showed up one day with a stick. He was just the sort of guy he would dabble in things like that. And he found a used one and he picked it up. Um, he was terrible at it and never developed any skill at it whatsoever and ended up selling it. But um, just seeing it, I was like, I was kind of jealous. And I was like, damn, I was supposed to be the guy around here that did that. What the hell? So I started looking into it. And the funny, this I, I, I got to tell this story real quick, but it's one of those kismet stories. You know, it's like if things had happened any differently. Um, I had a big order in. I was going to start making like this record I always wanted to make. And I decided, all right, I'm doing it. And I had a, some money and I put it in an order at Guitar Center to build a digital studio. I was buying all this gear for a bunch of money. And while I was waiting for the gear to come in, uh, my wife's car died, died to the point where it was going to cost a few thousand dollars to either repair or get her another car. And so we did that and I had to cancel the order for all the gear. I called them up and said, I can't do it right now. I'll order later. And in that sort of interim time was when I saw this guy show up with the stick and I thought, screw the record. I'm going to, I'm going to take the money and I'm going to buy one of those. And it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a birthday present for me at the time. So my, if my wife's car had not died, this, we, 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 we probably wouldn't be talking right now. So, wow. Yeah. It's just strange the way things happen. But, uh, I had only been playing for about a year, not even that. And I was online, the Stickwire listserv was going back then. That was where, that was pre-stickus.com. So that was where everybody was kind of hanging out and chatting. And there were stick seminars going on all over the place back then. There were little ones there. I swear there'd be two or three of them a year at least going on all over the country. And I, I wanted so bad to go to one. I had no money. And the closest one that I could have gone to that was supposed to be one in Toronto, which is driving distance for me. And it ended up getting canceled. And I think Utah introduced me to Steve Osborne and sent me out there. And he had already had one in Ann Arbor. And he said, you know, I'm too busy to basically put on another one. But if you want to help, you know, instead of you worrying about paying to go to a stick seminar, we can just bring them here. So that kind of got the whole ball rolling. It's purely selfish reasons, but kind of, you know, that kind of got the whole ball rolling. You know, Steve had the space in a store, so we didn't have to worry about that. All we had to do was get enough people to sign up to pay these guys. And guys like Greg and Bob were so generous. You know, they basically said, don't worry about what you're going to pay us. Let's just do it. And when it's all over, we'll just divvy up the money. Um, so that's what, what we did. That? That's how we used to do it. That was 2000. In, in Glenn. You know, this Michigan 
Stick story would not be complete without just a little bit on Steve Osborne. He's not as active on the stickest, but uh, he's also a, a part of that Kiss Me story as well, wouldn't you say? Well, in Michigan, Steve is like the the nucleus. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. e- everybody in Michigan that has ever seen a stick or touched a stick has at least walked into Steve's store. Um, and the funny thing is, like I said, I didn't know I was so close to him and I didn't know he was there. It was stick enterprises that pointed me to him. I actually took a couple lessons from Steve right after I got my stick. But he was one of the guys that saw the ad in the back of a guitar player mag before King Crimson even popped up and wow. just bought it and started to learn how to play. And so he bought it based on a magazine ad and not yeah. based on seeing someone play it. That's correct. Wow. So when he first when he got his first stick, he didn't really know what to do with it because he had never seen anybody play it. So he didn't know about, you know, how you sort of cross your hands over and things like that. So he was just kind of winging it and doing all sorts of crazy things. And of course, Emmett, you know, he would talk to Emmett on the phone and Emmett was fully behind any weird experimental technique of playing you could possibly come up with. He's like, well, there is no one right way. To, to play the thing. So Steve, he's got a couple of tunes, at least one tune, I think, that he still plays regularly, that if you watch the way he plays, he does some weird things with his hands, and it's because it's the first tune he ever wrote on the stick, and nobody had showed him how to play yet. So, so it's really <laughs> cool. True. So he had, yeah, so he, he had a lot of people coming in and out of the store, and he always had, had the instruments in the store where people could see him, and he had a couple of buddies in Ann Arbor, uh, Pete Gilbert and Wes Terrigan, that became really interested in it and they bought sticks and he started to teach them how to play and they formed the Michigan stick trio. They actually put out a CD, which I think stick enterprises still has a few copies of maybe. Oh, well. wow. I, I think we're about to see sales spike in that CD right now. It's yeah, like maybe. <laughs> and that was out and in circulation, you know, before I had ever picked up a stick or before I met him. So, you know, thank you to sent me over there. I hit it off with Steve really well. And, um, like I said, he was he did the one seminar in '98, I think, and I think Greg and Steve Adelson taught at it. And he had, you know, Steve he had always wanted to do another one, but Steve's a busy guy. You know, he runs the store. He teaches just about every kid in that neighborhood takes music lessons from Steve. Um, so he, he just could never get around to doing another one. And when I showed up, it was kind of like, you know, he saw somebody willing to stick their neck out and you know so he's like let's just do it you know he provided the space which was huge without that we might have never been able to pull it off so that kind of started the seminars and it was so much fun we just got into the habit of doing them every year we rarely missed a year those first few years in ann arbor and even the second year was interesting because the second year was uh 2001 and the seminar was scheduled to take place on September 14th. And oh. on the 11th, you know, things went down and we didn't know what was going to happen. And Bob was the only teacher that was scheduled to come. And I talked to Bob and Bob was amazing because he was driving and he had a girlfriend that, whose parents lived in Ann Arbor back then. And his feeling was, let's just do it. He said, there may be some money, there may not be money, but let's just do it. And let's just see what happens. And I don't remember how many people we had sign up, but we ended up with about a half dozen that still came. And it was such a small group that we moved from the store and we moved over into Oz's basement and did it down there. And it was really cool. It was one of the one of the more fun seminars we had just because, you know, we were up against it and it still it still came off really well. Hmm. 
Wow. No, I had there no is idea. something that is so like magically unique about a, a, a stick event because everyone's so excited to be there and um, everyone's so excited to be with other people that feel the same way that they do. Yeah. And I, I remember having this conversation with Kevin Keith, you know, and he's and it was like you can't when do you get together that many people who feel the same way about this instrument that has basically like unleashed them. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, that's, that's very true. Yeah. And I had a similar conversation just a couple days ago with uh, Gary, who is the new director of the adult programs at Interlock. And because he asked a question, if things went South, um, is this something that we could do virtual? And my immediate answer to him was probably not. And he said, why? And I said, well, a lot of people take virtual lessons from these guys all the time anyways. So we don't really bring anything to the table. The thing we bring to the table is the place, the camaraderie, you know, and the experience. And if you take that away, why should they pay you when they could just pay Greg or pay Bob or pay Steve or so? And it's for the very reasons that Gene just said, you know, there's something magical about the event itself. Yeah, I think that part of that is also, you know, you get to be in a room full of people who you don't have to explain what the instrument is. You don't have to explain (laughs) what the issue is that you might be discussing. You don't have to explain. Uh, You don't have to say, well, I play this weird instrument that has 10 strings that you tap and you don't generally play. It's just. Yeah, and it's a little bit more than that also, because you get to, to hang out with people you don't know from anywhere. And you don't have to play defensive, you know, you just get in front of people and you just start talking and you feel there's a connection, whatever it is. And you don't feel there's a reason to, you know, to hide a little bit or be defensive or whatever. And that's a very unique experience when you it get is. to live that. Yeah. So it's, you get that connection and you get it almost immediately, exactly. too. That's, it's really cool. So, yeah. We want to talk. I want to get more of the the like your experience with the music and 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 how that how you came into music to start with. And, and I feel like we've got a pretty good start of it. And and, and just out of curiosity, I've, I'm kind of curious to know like what were bands that you like to listen to? Like what made you want to play music? The Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> when I was a little kid, you know. Well, it was a combination of things. Um, my parents were both born in the early 20s, so they were big band kids. So when I was growing up, I had two older sisters and we had a finished basement. We had a little house in in suburban Detroit. We had a finished basement. My parents used to go down there and shoot pool. And my dad would just blast these big band records while they were down there shooting pool. And my sisters were upstairs listening to the Beatles and listening to Janis Joplin and the Doors and and just all this stuff. stuff. Was just playing, you know, and, and being the youngest was kind of cool because I, I grew up with kids that were my age that were the oldest in their family as opposed to the youngest. And their tastes were notably different from mine. We we kind of had a common ground where we met in the middle, but their tastes beyond that were a lot different than mine because they were the oldest. So they didn't have that influence from having siblings that were seven, eight years older than they than they were and I did, which I felt very fortunate for. And then there was also the big band thing. And I play a lot of big band music, actually. When I, I was, Like I said, I was a horn player, and I got into playing big band music when I was in middle school and played that all through, well, through college, actually. And we had a band in high school that I can't take the credit for forming it, but there's a, there's a tourist attraction 
in Dearborn, Michigan called um, Greenfield Village. And it's like this outdoor place. It was built by Henry Ford. And just all these historic old buildings, you know, like Edison's workshop and things like that. And tourists come in and walk around there in the summer. And a couple of friends of mine formed this Dixieland band. And we actually got a gig in high school playing in the gazebo at Greenfield Village. And we would go over there and play music. And it was a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I played a lot of big band music. The, the funny thing is, is that so much of my jazz education was like old jazz like that. And I like to listen to a lot of rock. And I never really kind of like bridged the gap between the two back then. I didn't know about anything that came in between. And I think I was a freshman in college and a roommate that I had put on a copy of Cosmic Messenger by Jean-Luc Ponty. And that started to play. And that was one of those moments. I mean, I could, I still remember that was one of those moments where that music started to play and I just dropped what I was doing and I was just so completely floored. I was just like, what is this? Yeah. And it's like, this is, a lot. I want to make music that sounds like this. I want to make music that sounds like this. It's like, it's like jazz, but these guys are playing electric guitars and electric violins and synthesizers. And this is so cool. Mm. So that kind of led me off in that direction, you know, and I still, that record's still part of my regular rotation even now. into more maybe stick tech technical playing topics glenn you're you're someone who uses the looper a lot yes I think. <laughs> um and i wanted to ask you a little bit because I, I find your approach very interesting in that like personally i know a lot of people just they they, lay, they start looping and they layer and they keep going and after a while it's just the same loop every time you on the other hand and i'm going to use i'm going to use sunday in salt spring as an example you start a looper and you kind of add in very specific elements one at a time i think sunday in salt spring you're adding like very specific notes and so your layers you, you it feels like you end up using them more as an arrangement tool um, that one's one of my favorites yeah absolutely and yeah. so i'm curious can, can you talk a bit about that approach and how you got into it and and, and maybe even so i, I it feels like recently you're, you're kind of doing loops and using that even as maybe a basis for compositions um, based on some of the posts you've had lately and, and some of the things you've shared. So if you, if you could talk a bit about your process with that. Well, the, the process kind of happened for exactly <laughs> the reason that you were just talking about. Is, you know, I, I used to play a lot. When I was a guitar player, I used to like to play a lot with like really long delays and stuff. I mean, there, there was nothing, there were no dedicated loopers back then unless you wanted to go out and buy the reel-to-reel machine that Fripp used. So, you know, our only recourse was to go out and get some delays that had really long delays on them and play with those. And I used to do that quite a lot. But um, when I got into stick, I kind of realized that 
you know, it was a cool novelty thing to do some of the things with the long delays and stuff, but if I wanted to play solo performances, and if I wanted to do several tunes like that, there had to be some way to sort of break them up and not have just an entire night of just some guy prattling on and on and on with, you know, the same loops going over and over again, because it's cool once, and it might be cool twice, and I still do tunes that sound just like that. And, I, and sometimes I really love them, but you can't do a whole night of them. You can't do a whole record of them because it does get monotonous. And so you got to look for ways to break them up. And some of the dedicated looping devices, it's pretty obvious that the people that designed them designed them with that in mind because they put in functions that let you do things like that, functions that let you take a simple loop and multiply it by four or multiply it by eight or trim them down or, or start, start them and stop them or bring up tracks, bring down tracks, things like that. Um, you know, the tools are all there for you to be able to add some, some variety and some, some interesting textures to what you're doing. You just got to learn how to use them. You got to take the time to use them. You know, and I, I'd like to, to add to that, or certainly what I appreciate about your style, Glenn, is, is, is the, uh, it's a songwriting approach. It's about writing yeah. a song and, and like, well, yeah, looping, you know, but it, it requires a commitment to the technology and it requires a commitment to, you know, the process and the routine and the things that where we, we might kind of stumble along the way or we might get a new pedal or something. Who knows? Like they might not support a version anymore of a particular type of software. Like these things can come crashing down. And so in Sun, Sunday in Salt Spring in particular, it, it's so symphonic in its kind of structure, you know. It, it has a beginning and an end, which I appreciate. Well, and that's the other thing, is that, is that there are so many loop pieces, and I, I have a few of them that I do, and I've heard other people do them, that your only recourse when you get to the end is to either turn it off or to, like, hit the fade button and let the things fade out. And, you know, again, it's the same thing. That's really cool on a couple of tunes. It's not cool on all of them. So if you can figure out a way to end your tunes, that's mm. that's a challenge. But the whole thing is kind of a challenge. Um, you know, you got to practice it. It's like anything else; you have to practice it. And the fact that you're recording snippets that are playing back forever, or until you stop, um, means that when things go bad, they really <laughs> go bad. I mean, they can really go bad. And I, I've had performances where there was just no. I had absolutely no recourse but to just kill it and start over and i you know and then you learn to say something witty to the audience and make them laugh a little bit while you're red-faced and starting all over again but uh yeah sometimes it goes so bad that you just there's just nothing you can do yeah <laughs> smile yeah exactly that's exactly right you smile and and just very quickly get into the next song as though nothing learn to happen. laugh at yourself that's yep. right that's that's, right. that's the really Real thing, yeah. Learn to laugh about yourself. The audience will, will go your way if you do that. They will, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Glenn, what are you using currently for your tech? I mean, can you describe your tech setup? Or? I'm using, well, for the looping, I'm using the same thing I've used forever, and that's the Echoplex Digital Pro. I still think it's the, the finest looping device that was ever created, and I just keep going back to it. So, you know, and, until this one fries... I'll, I'll stick with it. Um, I've gone, I've gone fully digital now. I've gone fully computer based, and the, the Echoplex was actually the last piece of the puzzle. I've tried to go computer based four or five times, and I keep going back 
to my old sort of hardware rig because something just wasn't quite right. It's all well documented too, Glenn. Yeah. Because you'll put it out there. On the I know, I know. And it's be like, like I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this time. People are like, everyone tries to talk <laughs> yeah, you, know, you out of it. And then all, like the, you and all the Mac string. guys yeah. are like, no, it's great over here. You should come over here. And then Glenn's like, ah, I could do it. No, no. Well, there's so many software plugins that are so nice that I want so bad for them to be part of my setup. But like reverbs and stuff, there's some reverbs out there that are sound so amazing. And it's like, I want to go computer based so that I could like use these reverbs and stuff. But uh, there was always something that wasn't quite right. And I finally realized the last time that I tried it was that it was the looping. So something about the software. I tried a couple of different loopers that were based in software and it was just something didn't sound quite right. So the last time I went back to the computer I found a little plugin that's basically just like an input output for external hardware. And I am using the Echoplex again. So computer, main stage, Echoplex for looping. And that was the last piece of the puzzle. Now I'm never going back. <laughs> nice. Mm. Nice. Well, we can, right. We can put a, uh, put that one to bed. <laughs> put that one to bed. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's nice cause it's portable, you know, it's just nice to, to, to have the portability of, of a laptop instead of a big rack. And, you know, so, so Claire's question was, was a, was kind of a technical one. And, and um, if there's more to add to that, I'd, I'd like for you to expand on that. But I also so curious to know about the, the way in which you use a looper. It's an arranger's um, environment. It's about the song really. And so like, do you have any like techniques or, or processes that help you to, kind of like bring that song from like from conception into like actually being recorded really Mm. i mean you know it's funny because i've never used a looper on a on a tune that i recorded ever Mm. so on all the tunes that i've recorded i i have either taken the really simple loops and recorded a few seconds and then just used logic to cut and paste to Mm -hmm. make the loop or like a tune I was just working on a weekend before last, I actually played the loops. You know, I went through and I did a real rough take of the thing. And then I went back and I redid every track and I just played the loops like all the way through from the beginning of the tune to the end of the tune. So you're only using the looping as a performance device then? I only use the looper as a performance tool and also a writing tool because, a writing you know, tool. If it, yeah. Ooh, yeah. a lot of these tunes would never would never have come to fruition if I hadn't played them live. So, and I also don't feel like stuck with, you know, like there's a tune that I played called In the Orchard. I've played the tune for years and it's a looped piece and I finally decided to record it. And I've just started to work on it a couple weeks ago. And I sat down and I recorded all the stick parts exactly how I perform them live. And then I went through and listened again and I thought, that's really cool, but it would be even cooler if I like ripped that part out and replaced it with an electric piano or pulled this part out and replaced it with an acoustic guitar and things like that. And by the time I was done with it, it doesn't sound like the live performance anymore, but I don't care because it's better. And that's <laughs> yeah. the fun, right? Is, is yeah. arranging for it and being like, yeah, I really is. love yeah. what, taking these things into the studio and just saying, saying the sky's the limit and like mm-hmm. saying, you know, you do what you want, you do what's in your head and what you, what you want it to sound like that's what you do and forget about we had a guy the first rock band i was ever in we recorded a record and this guy was very like hitting us over the head with a hammer saying you absolutely do not record something you can't play live 
And I've since decided that he was completely full of shit. And the worst mistake that I ever made was listening to him when we made that record, because I would have done that record very differently if it were entirely up to me. And I think it would have been way better because you're in the studio now. If there's one thing the Beatles taught us, it's that when you're in the studio, you do what you want and everything else be damned. You know, if you want to make if you want to make it sound huge with 100 people playing at once, then that's what you do. Yeah. So, and actually it's funny and and it's sad for me to bring this up, but when, when I was working on the record I made in 2007, I was struggling at the time between whether I wanted to go in a direction where I would record a CD that I could sell at live shows. Like I I was playing live shows at little places where I was really kind of toning it down and playing stuff that sounded more solo stick. And I almost felt bad bringing CDs with me because somebody would say, oh, that sounds really cool. Do you have a CD? And I'd pull this thing out and I always had to give them a caveat that says, you know, this isn't really, doesn't really sound like what you're, what you're hearing here. So I had this moment where I was trying to decide which direction I wanted to go. And I actually had an email conversation with Sean Malone. Sean Malone was actually the one that said, screw that. He said, if you got a record that you want to make, you make the damn record and everything else be damned. Sean Malone. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. That guy. <sighs> yeah, so the looper's a part of it. The looper's a part of it. And it's not so much a genre. It's just a, a, a tool in the tool it's belt. It's a tool. Yeah, and that's the most enjoyable for me because I'm always trying to find the shortest distance in between having an idea for a song, conceptualizing the song, you know, writing the song, and then recording the song. Yep. Robert Fripp called it the best way on earth for one person to make a heck of a lot of noise. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, let me give a quick little plug here for you, Glenn, because you have uh, have, uh, at least three charts that you've got on your website, 121normal.com. You've got uh, a chart for a thousand words, for shades, and for the manifest. I've learned two of those songs, but one of them, a thousand words, actually is a looping song and you've yeah. got instructions in the you've it's got first time first and only time i've done that yeah yeah and it's really cool now actually i mean i've learned the song and when i've played it i've played it without looping uh because i haven't been able to really make it work because looping is a skill and you know i haven't yet acquired it but for those out there that maybe have wanted to get into looping and you know you think it might be useful to to try and learn something looped that is pretty well documented so you can just use it as a as a learning tool plus it's a great song to learn too it's called a thousand words and um it's a really pretty song as well and well, uh, so anyway there you go there's a plug uh, go uh, if you want to if you want something to experiment with on a looper just to kind of get your feet wet and you don't want to have to figure out how to use it and incorporate it into a tune that you're playing go get a thousand words and learn it and uh, and it's got instructions on how to set your looper and when to start using the loop. I never knew this. Off. Wow, I'm so yeah, curious yeah, so now. It's called a thousand words. This, yeah. this would be kind of a cool exercise now. I'm yeah, it was, so it was the one time I tried to see if I could like do a chart. And I, I like to do charts. I, I have a lot more that I put up on my website, and I should really put up some of the other ones. I, I like to have videos to go along with them.
By the way, that I thought most of those songs are for an alto stick. Um, however, I've learned them on a grand. And uh, so, like, you know, don't be intimidated. Oh, it says alto. I can't use it. No, pick up yeah. your grand stick oh, you that's not yeah. tuned the same way necessarily and Transpose. you can still do it. Yeah. So. Yep. Actually, I've played that tune on a grand stick before. You can play that suit tune in that key on a grand stick. Way up the neck playing it, but it can oh, be I drop done. It I briefly so toyed. I, to do it. I briefly toyed with the idea once of selling my alto and just doing all my alto tunes on the grand, and I actually learned them. You actually can do it, but it just it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound the same. Yeah, I. So, yeah, I, I take it down an octave. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, when I listen to your recording, I listen to myself. It does sound a little different, but uh, but it still sounds good. So it's fun. Yeah, but yeah. So I I started to uh, I got into the habit. Actually, with guitar, I got into the habit. Now I'm starting to do it with stick, too. I've, I've written a lot of solo pieces for fingerstyle guitar, and I decided the best way for me to not forget them <laughs> if I go six months without playing them was to just get into the habit of every time I write a new piece to, to do notation for it and then just save it. So I got into the habit of doing it for guitar, and then I sort of went back and started to do it for some of my stick tunes. Uh, not all of them by any stretch, but A Thousand Words was an interesting one because I got to that one and I thought, boy, it'd be really cool to notate, but it's a looped piece. So how the hell do you notate something that, that you have to loop? And I decided to do that one first because that's probably the simplest looped tune that I have. So I wanted to see what that would look like notated with instructions on how to loop. And it seemed to come out pretty well. I mean, I, I think it worked. And you yeah played with it so it yeah must be also another nice thing about clear. that song it makes a good you know if you don't want to use a looper it's also a good piece to play in a stick duo yeah because, you know that you know hey you know part of the song is supposed to be looper well i don't have a looper but i got this guy named jim meyer next to me that you know and, and you know that or, or whoever so yeah <laughs> Um, speaking of notation for stick, <laughs> um, see, see what we did there. See what you did there. Um, so, Glenn, you you actually got in touch a while ago with me about, um, I guess, more tab notation for stick. And I at the time, um, I think I pushed back a little bit because I'm I'm from the piano world. I'm used to notes and I'm used to seeing them. And, and honestly, tab for me is has always been a little foreign. Um, and thankfully you, you kind of pushed back a little bit and said, Hey, why don't you try it? And I, and I did, and I set up, I think you had either sent me a, I had a template that I made. Yeah. Yeah. So I I tried that and and got into it. And I, and I have to say, like, I actually do use that now when I'm learning pieces because I can, I can easily just get it all in, get the notes all in. I'm I'm using finale personally, but there's, there's tons of different software out there. Um, but I can get the notes in easily, either playing them and, and a MIDI thing, and then it's pretty quick for me. And, and with the tab, all I really need to know is like what fret am I on for each note, and that helps me learn pieces because I I can work on something for a while, and if I don't look at it for a little bit and I come back to it, I've kind of forgotten all of the stuff I've worked on, and having that as a as a reference for me has actually been pretty pretty great <laughs> so yeah i like it and, and like i said it was sort of the guitar playing that that pushed me in that direction i did i did maybe one or two notations for stick a long time ago and i did it with staff tab and i'd gotten a hold of the staff tab font that art Durkey is sort of the keeper of and i did it and i like it i like the way it looks and i think it it has all the information you would need to play something on stick the only thing that i didn't like about it was as somebody actually doing the notation 
it's a little cumbersome because you Definitely. know the tools aren't aren't really set up for it. Um, when I started to do guitar notation, the first thing that jumped out was that guitar notation. And, and let's be clear too. I mean, tab started out as something that people could do in text files. You know, they would have the lines and the X's. And the idea was that the original idea with tab was that you already knew how the song went. You just didn't know how to play it. So it didn't necessarily have the notation in it of like, these are the notes and this is the timing. It was just the marks on the fretboard of where to play them. So originally tab assumed you knew the tune and the tab was just showing you where to put your fingers. Um, Later on, they sort of joined standard notation up with tab notation. So now when you write for guitar, it's a double staff. You have the regular notation on the top staff, on the staff below it, you have the tab notation. And it's become such a popular way to notate for guitar that just about every software tool on the planet supports it. And they support it really well. So if you like doing tab, you can open up Finale and you can notate a bunch of tab and then just select it and drag it to the standard notation staff and it just does it. And you can do it the other way around. It's what I do because I like to, I know how to notate standard music. So I tend to notate my tunes as standard music. And then when I'm done, select it, drag it to the staff below and Finale just does the tab automatically and I'm done. And it's so fast. And I started to think, you know, I'm going to try this for stick because you can set up your tabs to be tuned however you want. And you can, you can do custom tunings because lots of fingerstyle guitar players use custom tunings all over the map. So when you're doing that, what's the likelihood that the software is going to put notes on the wrong strings? Oh, it's, it's extremely likely. So, <laughs> so you have to, you have to, to make fix? adjustments. Okay. Yeah. It's really easy to lie. fix. That wasn't the answer no, I was hoping for, Glenn. No, it's really easy to fix. And as a matter of fact, they, they take it into account. So say, let's, let's go back to guitar for a minute. So say you notate a bunch of standard music notation on the top staff for guitar. When you select it and drag it down to the bottom, before it does anything, it asks you, what's the lowest fret? that you're going to use here because you could put a note on the first fret on the highest string, or you could put it on the seventh fret of the next highest string. So it asks you right away, it said, what's the minimum fret in this, in this selection of stuff you've grabbed, what's the minimum fret? And if I say the minimum fret is six, it won't put a note on the first fret of the highest string. It'll put it up on the seventh fret of the next highest string. Mm. Things like that. So they take it into account. Even then, some things they still get wrong. So you got to eyeball it and make sure it's right. And it's, if it's not right, you just drag it over. It's really simple to fix. So there's, there's no software in the world that can get it right 100% of the time because they don't know how you play things. And, and, it, you, and people you make play different. Things different and it, yeah, you play things different all the time anyways. And, you know, people make note choices out of convenience. They also make note choices out of the way they sound. A fatter string sounds different than a thinner string. And you might not like the sound of a thin string. So you might go high and play it on something on a fatter string just because you like the way it sounds. So there's no and software. And you can change your fingering right. over time also. So That's also true. Yeah. So no software is going to get it right over time. So back to the stick, I set up a custom template with four staffs. So obviously a stick's not just one staff in standard notation. It's the grand staff like a piano. So you need four staffs, two for standard notation two for the right and left, one for the right hand, one for the left hand for the tab. And that was kind of the rub at first, because with four staffs, 
you're flipping pages like crazy because you're not getting very much information on a page. You and get like first, two systems each. Yeah. Page. Well, two, two systems on the first page and then I can get three systems on, on the rest of the pages, which isn't horrible, you know, but then I asked Jim Meyer about that. And Jim Meyer said, you know, I work with a lot of students and he said, honestly, they don't care about the pages because they got a tablet up and they're just doing this. You know, they're just scrolling on their tablet. So he said, knock yourself out, make, make it as big as you want. So, you know, so I tried it with the four staffs and it was just like guitar. Once I got the template set up, I would just notate my music on the grand staff. And then when I was ready, I just grabbed it, dragged it to the staffs below. And there was grand stick tab, just bang. It was just there. And I was like, this is Been waiting for this. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it so, when it works. Yeah. So it works out. You know, I've been meaning to put some more, I have more charts than just the ones I have on the website for stick. And I've been meaning, meaning to put them up and just, you know, I'm, I'm curious for people to try them out just to see how well they work. And I hey, I'll be your guinea pig, man. Stuff. Go for it. Yeah. We need more stuff. We, you know, we need more charts out there. That's one of the things the stick is still lacking in is charts. You know, you're learning to play guitar there's so much stuff out there just about anything that you could want to learn either you can go and get charts from the original composer or charts from other people that have done it by ear some of them are horrible some of them are not but they're out there it's a great way to learn how to play an instrument yeah Yeah, actually a lot of things depend because I think most stick players are inclines more for the for the the tab thing than actually the the classical notation because for example most of the things everything i've recorded i've i've written down on a classical tab with a little tweaks just just let me know where a fret i'm at and which finger because that helps me when i forget or i want to start at bar 12 i know exactly where how to start and where to start so uh, but i've done it just in the pure classical uh, double staff the piano staff Uh, so the way you you're putting it, which is having both, which is kind of like uh, guitar books have it these days, that probably might be helpful. Although I would always think that it's best to you know have uh, the musical notation too, because that's where you you can extract more information out, out of a song than oh, just absolutely. playing it. Yeah, yeah, and you and you could well, and plus if you have the standard notation as well as the tab. You know, you can learn you can learn a song you've never heard. Exactly. I mean, and that's the thing is a lot of people don't really think about it. But like being a music student when I was young, I was constantly learning how to play things that I mean, these were songs that I've, I had never heard before. I didn't know what they sounded like until the music was sitting out in front of me and I started to play it. So, and that's kind of an odd thing, but it's normal you, when you're. Yeah. Sorry. I think if you if I mean, if you read music. I, I suspect maybe tab gets there at some point and I'm just not as familiar with it. But if I, if I see a piece of music, I know what it sounds like. I don't have to have heard it. Right. Like exactly. I, I might not, I don't have perfect pitch, so I might not hear it in the wrong, in the right key, but I'll know, I can look at a melody and see yeah. like, I, I know what that melody sounds like. I'm not as practiced in harmony. I should be, but I can look at a chord and I, like I, I can look at a sheet of music and see what it sounds like. I can hear it. Like I don't have yeah. to know the piece. Um, and I think, I mean, that's just something you practice, like your instrument, like reading yeah, music comes with time. And, yeah. and, and harmony and all that stuff. Like, it's just something to practice like everything yeah. else. 
So here's a question. So one of one of the things that I sometimes wonder if it's having a negative impact on availability of music for people is the fact that there are three or four probably equally saturated tunings in the stick. I thought about that too. Yeah. And so for instance, you know, uh, I was raving about a thousand words. Well, you know, I'm master reciprocal and that's either baritone melody or classic. So I had to, yeah. you know, if I wanted yeah. to use the, the fret fingering indicators, you know, I had to, I had to make a change with that. How easy is it to take a song that you've notated and to make the transition on the melody side with those two frets. Now, there's always a risk that changing, you know, moving it, those two frets might bring your hands into conflict with one another. And that's always an that's issue. The that's the rub right there. That's sometimes yeah. why you change tunings completely is because you find your hands are crashing together too often. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Greg put out the Greg Howard songbook and I don't know what tuning came first, but then it took him some time. Baritone melody. To, well, then it took him some time to put yeah. out a version for another tuning. And I think he's got it for three tunings now. I'm not sure. And it took him a long, there's a lot of work changing between tunings. Yeah. It would be really cool. And this is not really necessarily a question for you unless you know the answer, but it would be really cool if there was a way to make that faster because, you know, there is segregation in, in songs yeah. availabilities yeah. and what tunings. And it would be really cool if you knew that that song's available. Yeah, I can tell you, I haven't I haven't tried it yet. I haven't actually done it yet, but I can tell you that in something like Finale, if you go in and say edited that that staff where the tab is and change the tuning of those strings, it'll just it'll just fix it. It'll just do it for you. But it might be wrong. That's the one thing it doesn't know is it doesn't know about things like your hands colliding and things like that. So, right. so that's the first step is letting Finale just go through and change everything. But then you would have to go through measure by measure and make sure that it's still playable. Yeah. And if you don't have an instrument like that, it may not right. be easy to make that determination. It yes, may not be easy to make that determination. Yeah. 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 That's, I'm pretty sure that's a, a knock knock joke, or uh, how many stickists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Uh, that, that's that's the punchline. Is, is 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 what's the tuning? Yeah. <laughs> Glenn Porman. No interview would be complete without bringing up interlocking. And for me, the one time that I did go, and it was magical, not only because I had a five-hour car drive with Greg Howard, where we talked about everything imaginable about the Chapman stick. But when we arrived, we arrived into Interlochen, Michigan. And Interlochen to me was a bit of a mystery because I heard stickists raving about it and there's a lot of you know kind of repeat kind of um, stickists or consumers of stickwares in the region but there is a, a history to interlock and not only to, to, to music but the creation of a certain style or a type of education um, that emanated from that area and the fact that your parents were 
in the big band kind of business, if you will. It, 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 I didn't even know it could go any deeper. And so <laughs> I'd love to know, will you share with me that same kind of, that rich musical history um, about Interlochen? Well, the, the gentleman that started, Interlochen opened its doors in 1928. So it's been almost a hundred years. And these guys, they were interested in ways to educate young people in music. And they formed this high school band. There was a bunch of high school players, and they put them together to play band music, and taught them how to play all this, all these pieces. And they used to tour all over the country. And eventually, they settled in northern Michigan and decided to open this camp. Now, the the thing, going back to how they taught this this band how to how to play, um, their methods for teaching these guys how to play, for these guys and girls how to play. Um, eventually became the bedrock for the public school music programs in the United States. I mean, these were the two guys that basically started that and all the methods that have been used for the last almost 100 years, they, it goes back to these two gentlemen that started interlocking. So they opened up in 1928 as a camp, a summer arts camp, well, summer music camp, now they call it a summer arts camp, back then it was just music. And it was, you know, eight weeks. Kids could come up and spend the summers up there and learn how to play. And it expanded from there. And eventually they added acting and dance and other forms of arts. And it's grown considerably. But the interesting thing is that a lot of the original buildings are actually still there. So new things just kind of grew up around it. And it's been going solidly the first time ever that they canceled the summer since 1928 was 2020. Yeah. Which was, you know, it's somewhat tragic, but you know, we all know they had to do it. So, so they did. We almost made it to a hundred years. Like we were like, almost made it. (laughs) But now being a, now it, it was pretty well known. There were kids, there were kids that came there to camp from all over the world, mostly the United States, but it was a, it was a international place. And, in Michigan, we all, if you were a music student in Michigan, you knew about Interlock and it, it, was some, it was something that, you know, we all aspired to do. You had to either audition to get in there for the summer, or if you went to solo and ensemble festivals and your scores were high enough, that just sort of automatically qualified you to go. And that's how I, that's how I ended up going. I did not audition. But um, I got to go in the summers of 77, 78, and 79. And it was really cool because it wasn't cheap. And it's, it's definitely not cheap now. It was a little more reasonable back then. But um, in the town I grew up in, if you got accepted to go, uh, the school paid a significant portion of the tuition. So that was really cool. So that's how I got to go. So those were some of the greatest experiences I ever had as a musician was being a camper there. And it was something that was always near and dear to me. So in 2006, I spent a lot of time up in this area just vacationing. And in 2006, my wife and I bought the house up here that a couple of you guys have actually been to. Three of you have been to, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm feeling I, left over, you know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Time, You're more than welcome anytime. Um, 
So I used to go down, and it's not far, so I used to drive down there and visit. It's the first couple times I went down there. It was so amazing because I hadn't been there in so long. And I got out of my car, and, you know, all the hair on my arms just stood up. I just got the chills. And I got out of my car, and I walked straight to my old cabin. Like, I could have put a blindfold on, and I could have gotten out of my car and walked straight to my old cabin. I just found it immediately. And by this time, it was probably maybe 2007, and the Ann Arbor workshops had been going on since 2000. And I remember standing in the middle of campus, and there was a little cabin right next to me, and all the windows were open, and there was a bunch of 16, 17-year-olds in there playing, rehearsing some jazz, and they sounded really amazing. And right then, I grabbed my phone, I dialed up Greg Howard, I said, we got to move these workshops, and I shoved my phone in the window <laughs> and made him listen to these kids play for a little while. And uh, I said, I got an idea, I'll call you back. <laughs> So and I walked into the I walked into the alumni office. I had just met this woman I'm in the sorry, alumni office. Can I go office. back for a second there? Yeah. So so as far as Greg knows, he picks up the phone. Glenn says, "We got to move this." this crazy. And guy. then he hears a bunch of music, <laughs> and then you hang up on him. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know, that's, that's pretty that's pretty much how it happened. So oh, that's great. So I walked into the alumni office, and I had this idea that you know if they were willing to rent me space, we could do what we do in Ann Arbor and do it in Interlock. And I had no idea if they would even do such a thing. So I walked to the alumni office. I explained to this woman what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And she said, you need to talk to Matt Williford. I'm like, okay, whatever. So she sends me over. She sends me over to Matt Williford. Matt wasn't there. She, oh, actually, she gave me his contact information. So I go home. I draft an email to this guy and I send it. I'm like, you know, hopefully he'll get back to me. Maybe he won't. I'm used to being ignored. Um, not 24 hours goes by and Matt sends an email back to me and says, are you still in the area? And I said, yeah. And he said, can you come tomorrow at 11 o'clock? I'm like, I'm there. That's great. So I walk in and I had no idea about the College of Creative Arts. I had no idea about the adult programs. And it's funny because I get mailers from Interlochen all the time. And I probably got mailers for the adult programs, and I probably just grabbed them and threw them away. Um, and I walked into Matt's office, and he starts talking about, you know, we got these adult programs, and we're always looking for ways to, to make them hipper than your average programs because this is Interlochen, you know. So we're looking for new and different things. And he wanted us to be part of their curriculum. And it's funny because my initial reaction was, no, I don't want to do that. He's like, well, why, why not? Why not? I was like, well, I was, I was, I was paranoid. You know, I didn't want to be beholden to anybody. In Ann Arbor, we were never beholden to anyone. We didn't stand to lose anything if we didn't get enough people and yeah. things like that. And that, you know, at first that kind of got thrown at me and I was not expecting it. My first reaction whoa, was, whoa, 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 whoa. This is interlocking, right? This yeah, is, this is this not, is yeah. So like, is... I'm, I'm like, I don't think so. I said, I just want to rent. He said, well, A, he said, we don't do that. We, we're not just going to rent you space. He said, and you can't do it in the middle of camp anyways, because, you know, we got 2,500 young music students here. You, there's no place to, to put you. And, and at the time that was even true for, programs that were part of his thing they didn't have their own building yet so they couldn't do any of the adult programs during camp which was a huge disappointment for me because you know half of the thing i wanted you guys 
to come up and experience life oh, the way man. I did. Oh man, Glenn, I you felt know? it. I yeah, felt but, it. But you weren't there in 09. In 09, we couldn't do it during camp because there was no oh. place to put adults. So in 09, they didn't have their own building yet. So all of the programs had to either be the month before camp or the month after camp. Interesting. Oh, so, wow. so that's what we did then. And so it was Matt's idea to make us part of the, you know, Matt, he's such a great guy. It was Matt's idea to make us part of the curriculum. And it was also bad. And it, it's, it's so funny because when I sent him an email, he didn't know what the heck a stick was. And by the time I walked into his office, he knew everything about what a stick was. He must have been on his computer for 48 straight hours reading because it was Matt's idea to play up the fact that it had been 40 years since Emmett invented freehands. He said, well, this is the 40 year anniversary. I'm like, 40 year anniversary of what? <laughs> 40 year anniversary of freehands. And I'm like, why are you telling me this? Yeah, yeah. Like I felt like kind of an idiot. And I was because I didn't, you know, I didn't even really connect the dots on that, but he did. And he said, well, yeah, what if you, you know, played up that it's 40 years and what if we got, what if, what if we got Emmett to come? I'm like, well, I can ask him, but you know, Emmett doesn't leave California. So he came to Michigan once, I think in 05 or 06 to Ann Arbor. I said, but the chances, I, I thought the chances of getting him to come to Ann Arbor were a million to one, and he came. The chances of getting him to come to Michigan twice, just not going to happen. I get a hold of Emmett. Emmett says, it's a great idea. I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, then. So, you know, so we kicked off. We had the first one in 2009, and our two teachers were Emmett and Greg. It was in August. Um, so back then since there were no campers, they had this thing called the Guitar Festival and Workshop. And we were actually part of that. So they had these guitar workshops where they taught classical folk, fingerstyle, rock, bass. And they used to get about 80 students that would sign up for this thing every year. So they just sort of included stick in there and we added about 20 more students. And uh, it was really cool at the time because since, since it was part of this bigger program, when it came time for the faculty to do a concert, instead of just a couple of stick players playing in that small room where we do it now, they were in one of the big auditoriums. And Greg and Emmett were sharing the stage with like the Mel Bay Trio and uh, you know a bunch of really well-known guitar players. And there were people coming from Traverse City to come see these guitar players. So they got to play in front of a pretty sizable audience that summer. Um, that's something we haven't been so able to do since. Is that the one? Greg has a recording out there. I think that's it's the Tomorrow one. Never Knows. Is that from that that's year? exactly the one. That's from that year, and it's from that auditorium. Yeah, that's and an awesome a, recording. That's one of the ones. You want to see what a stick can do solo, you know, in the hands of someone that knows the instrument. And, and what? yeah, that's one of the videos that you point people to is his performance of Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. was really cool. It was, just, you know, it was just a cool workshop all the way around. And um we kind of decided at the time, Matt and I decided at the time that, you know, he asked about the turnouts in Ann Arbor. And I said, some of them have been really good, some of them not so good. And we kind of figured maybe we could avoid that rut of having down years if we did it every other year instead of every year. I think that was a really wise thing to do. And, and so we've never had less than like a dozen people since we've gone every other year. And in Ann Arbor, there were years where it was really sparse. <laughs> so I think that was a wise move and we've kind of stuck to that. And my aim is to continue to stick to that. 
It's an interesting thing, Glenn. Like I think you and then uh, Jim with Vancouver are the only real like regular stick events. Like yeah, I think that's true. Historically, I mean, I know, I know, in France they've done a few that have yeah. kind of repeated, but um, it's like oh, every other year there's going to be. I mean, you know, pandemics. Like, well, Jim is Jim's Jim's pretty. He much does the every king. year. Jim's yeah. much. Jim's done way more of these than I have. But but I'm I'm saying like you you know like every year there's a, you know there's likely to be a Vancouver seminar and every other year there's yeah. very likely to be a, an interlocking seminar and you can you can kind of count on it it's kind of I think that's a rare thing in Stickland it is well back in the earlier days you were that was still correct and also you could add San Diego to that because I think back in the 2000s I I think Tom did seminars just about mm-hmm. every year in San Diego. Um, and he stopped doing them because, again, he's you know one of the most busy people in in the music business. So, and nothing like walking into like a wooden classroom with like <laughs> fourteen kids playing the 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 clarinet at a very high level, and then looking around at each other while they're playing, and, and, and it's like it's such a beautiful and serious and playful musical um, enterprise. So. Um, when I was at Interlock, and I remember one of the toughest decisions that I had to make on a daily basis was when lunchtime came, you, know, you walk outside the adult programs building and you hear this music and, Just you know, magical. we were headed to a car and I wanted to take a right turn and go into that building and listen to these kids playing because it was just, it, it's everywhere. Music is everywhere. You walk the half mile to your room and you're hearing yeah. music every, coming out of every building. I'm I'm like right there right now, and I remember this kind of woody, kind of like dark cafeteria, and there's you know those little like cups of like Jello, and like there's a little <laughs> right. salad with a cherry tomato and stuff like that. And and, yeah. and I remember I just was like, oh man, that's my warning to people all the time. As I said, you know, as far as food goes, it is a high school cafeteria, the so don't expect stuff. anything more than that. But I I remember the first year that Bob taught, which was 2011. Every day we would go to lunch and there's there's the big auditorium right next to where we would go to eat lunch. It's a big outdoor auditorium. It's a huge place. And it um, it doubles as Traverse City's sort of live music venue for national touring acts. So it's a huge auditorium. The World Youth Symphony plays in there, but they might close it off and have Steely Dan in there on the weekend. So cool. So but there's a full size pipe organ in there. And. In 2011, every day at lunch, there was a high school kid that was an organ major that would go in there and practice. And it was one of those pipe organs where when he hit the low notes, you know, your entire diaphragm just vibrated. And Bob, we always had to drag him from lunch back to start our afternoon workshop because he didn't want to leave till the kid was done practicing because he wanted to sit there and listen. (laughs) You know, and every day he'd be rushing out of the workshop to run down so he could grab his food and go out to this picnic table and listen to this kid practice. There's some pretty cool footage of you uh, playing on that stage, isn't there? Uh, I think there was a. a no, really good... I don't think so. No. Uh, well, well, I'm thinking of the one that you did with the alto that was an outdoor recording. Maybe oh, that oh, was oh! That was that was a different stage. Yeah, there's okay. an outdoor stage that's much closer to um, where we do our workshop to that building, and that. That is actually not very old. Mm-hmm. I think they built that in 2010. So that was probably 2011. It was. It was 2011, that footage of me playing out there. And that was the first summer that that stage was open. 
It was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it's really, it's, and that's also a really, really nice stage. And it was, it was. Yeah, it was really just, cool. Just to be there, just to be there. So um, let me ask you this, because we're, we're, we're covered, we've covered Interlochen so, so well. I, I know that I've heard what I wanted to hear, but what comes next for Interlochen and, and this relationship that you have with the school? Oh, you know what? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. They, they keep growing. Um, they're doing some things that I don't know if it's good or bad. They're very happy. They, they just built a music building. They said, I know it's a music camp, but they said, this is the first time that we have a dedicated music building. It's a large building. It's new. It's actually quite beautiful. I got mixed feelings about it, to be honest, because they you know, they say, well, this is great because music students, everything they need, their theory lessons, their private lessons, their group lessons, all this stuff, it's all in one place. And I, my first thought is, I don't know if that's good. You know, we used to we used to have to walk all over the place in our day to day activities. We had to walk all over the place to these buildings. Some buildings were 10 years old. Some buildings were 60 years old. Um, and that was part of the charm, I think. Yeah. Was oh, to absolutely. do that. So the fact that they're sort of routing them all and getting them all in this nice new building now. I don't know. Maybe for the young students, maybe that's good. Maybe they like that. I think it's I think they're losing a little bit by doing that. It's kind of the sure. same reason, you know, at one point. Uh, Leslie, one of the directors of the adult programs, asked me if we wanted to start catering lunch in the building where we have lessons. Uh, my first reaction no. was no. No. I said, we got to walk down to the cafeteria. These guys got to go hang out with the students in their blue corduroys and, you know, and the, the, the powder blue shirts. They yes. Just, you know, yeah, it is nice I, that you have to walk a half mile from the adult students building yeah. to the cafeteria yeah. because you get to you just walking down, just walking that path. I don't know that it's a half mile. Yeah. Now this year, this year might be another story. Um, and mm. we've, we've had this conversation and I've, I'm a little concerned just because, oh, I'm not concerned. I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, if, if we might lose any interest because this year there's most likely going to be some restrictions. And one of them will certain, certainly be lunch. We'll probably be catering lunch this year just because of COVID. You know, though, you can still take your lunch down someplace and sit out in the woods and, and eat it, right? Yeah, so there's, yeah. There's but that. We'll probably be restricted from spending time down in the mall, you know, down, yeah. in, the, down in the center of things. We'll probably have to stay on our side of campus gotcha. unless you're going back to the hotel. Gotcha. Um, things like that, you know, so it's, it's definitely going to be a different kind of summer and that's going to be a little bit of a bummer. And it's especially a bummer because, you know, we, we, we have Larry coming this year and Larry was a double bass player in the world youth symphony at Interlochen back in the, you know, early to mid seven. I don't know what year he was there, but I know he's older than I am. So it had to have been early to mid seventies. And, you know, I got a hold, I knew he was an alum and I got a hold of him this year and said, well, I don't, you know, I know that you don't teach at a lot of these workshops, but we do these at Interlock. And so I wondered if you would give it some thought about coming and teaching. And I got an email back from him about five minutes later mm -hmm. and said, I had to think about that for a grand total of 30 seconds. He said, I'm in. I'm so glad <laughs> to hear that, Glenn. But I don't think he's been here since, I don't think he's been here since he was a student. Oh, so. Man. He's going to, so he's going to have Larry's that moment. There, I'm there. Like if Larry's there, I'm there. He's going to have that moment where he, you know, gets out of the car and just stands in the middle of the mall and just yeah. like goes, Oh my God. Yeah. Larry Tuttle. That's going to be a great event. I it's hope really so. Interlock and beyond just the music, it's kind of like 
I mean, it's it looks like a resort or something. You drive yeah. up and there's tree. I mean, it's a beautiful area. It's a gorgeous area in general. Yeah, it really is. But yeah. the campus is like there's there's it's you know it's it's a good sized campus. There's like trees and like places Cabins. to walk and a lake. You know, it's like, two legs. <laughs> okay, the two state legs. bird is a mosquito. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> But it's it's yeah. a gorgeous area. It's, it's yeah, it's really cool. nice. Oh yeah, yeah. There's it's, nothing it's like it. It's a retreat, you know. It's like a retreat. Uh, Emmett called it Brigadoon when he came in, in 2009. Plus, when Emmett was here, it rained continuously mm. the entire time that he was here. Yeah. I guess continuous rain doesn't make that walk to lunch very fun. No, <laughs> I that was, was a thinking about times. that. <laughs> No, yeah, people call, had umbrellas. Call the, but the golf cart with that one. Yeah, call the golf cart. We had Emmett, Emmett rode the golf cart several times that week. So We dream of rain here in California. So you say it rain like it's a bad thing and we're like, oh, oh I don't really. mind it. Yeah, yeah. I think the two times I've gone to Interlock and we had just perfect weather the entire time, mm-hmm. if I recall. But, yeah, we've been fortunate most of the time. I mean, it, 09 was really the worst weather that that we had. That was when Emmett was here, unfortunately. But actually, no there there was a downpour like one day, I think. Oh, could I be. Rem- I can't remember when. Yeah. But. It, it, yeah, was, it was it was interlocking where I learned also. what an inland sea was. Well, it's a sea. It's a, not an inland sea. It's just a sea, <laughs> like the Baltic, like the Baltic or the Black Sea or. When you grow up by the Pacific, we don't know any better. So I was That's educated. True, yeah. I was educated. Like an inland sea, like it, it gets rocky. Not, it's not like the Pacific. Or it's not like the Atlantic. You don't you don't know how an inland sea works. And I it looks kind of, well. It looks kind of like the Pacific or the Atlantic, but there's no salt. Mm. So. But it's also rougher, as I recall. Like, is it? I don't know. I don't know if it's rougher than say the Pacific's pretty rough. Lake Superior is pretty rough. Lake Superior, they've written songs about Lake Superior chewing large ships in two. Isn't that where the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was set? That is exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. So coming back to the stick, just a, a, a curious question I have. How, how does that, uh, all these seminars you've organized there and uh, the stick being so close to, to so many young musicians, how does that transcribe in terms of uh, the the stick growing into a, a whole new different uh, audience. Yeah, you would think that it would have a big impact, but sadly it doesn't. Um, and I've tried to, when I, you know, when I was a camper at Interlochen, there was a lot of concerts that happened that we were required to go to. Now, looking back, it sounds stupid to say in a kind of complaining voice that they made me go see like Dave Brubeck, but... <laughs> But, but, you know, I was like a 16-year-old kid at the time. But, but you know, certainly I don't have any regrets. But they, I don't think that they do that so much anymore. And I would really like to – we've not really had much occasion to get some of the young campers, aside from the ones that work there. You know, they have campers that they hire to do things like take photos and run sound and stuff like that. They'll see us play, but they're about the only ones. I, th- I think the only time that I felt like we might have made a little bit of an impact – was in 2011 when we played at that outdoor venue because that was that venue was on sort of one of the major avenues where a lot of the students walk. So there were a lot of students that didn't necessarily sit for the whole show, but you could see them walking by 
take a few steps in, sit down, sit for four or five tunes, get up and then keep walking. That went on all night. And I would love to see more of that, but they just don't, you know, there's, there's this separation I feel like between the adult programs and the youth programs. And that's kind of unfortunate. I, I think it would be cooler to, if they had some more of the young players, even if they had to make them come to the concert. So Glenn, how much of it might be though, that it seems like for a young person and I wasn't there as a young person, you were, but it seems it's like a busy a young day. Person, it's very busy. It's very intense. And you are very hyper-focused on your own instrument. And I wonder how much of it is that, you know, I don't say this in a, in a necessarily negative way, but you just don't have time for anything. Well, that's true. No, that's absolutely true. You don't have, you don't really don't have time. But like I said, we went to concerts and that was something we did in the evenings and we didn't have a choice. Um, and it was cool, but yeah, it was an intense day. I mean, we got up, I, I remember, um, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was a camper there, I think it was at like six 30 or something. One of the adults came and woke up the, one of the lead trumpet players and they would go out into the middle and they would blow Reveille. And you had from the first note of Reveille to the last note of Reveille to be lined up out in the field for calisthenics. So it was this mad dash. They would start playing Reveille, and as soon as that first note hit, there were bodies flying off of bunks and guys pulling their pants up and getting their shoes on and running around in circles, throwing each other out of the way to be the first ones out the door because you only had till the end of Reveille to be lined up, ready for morning calisthenics. And that was pretty much the beginning of the day, and there was very, very little downtime. Just back up a little bit. I don't know that word. What, what does that mean, getting outside for calisthenics? Oh. Exercises. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first thing out of bed was exercises. Then we cleaned up and went to breakfast. But then, you know, you had group lessons, you had private lessons, sectional lessons, full rehearsals of the, you know, the full ensemble theory, you know, and this, this was every day, just, just about every day. So how, how old are the kids that go there for, for a camp? The youngest ones are about eight. Okay. Um, the eight? oldest ones are 18. Yeah, they start real young. There's not that many that age that go. Uh, so the, the number of super young campers is, is a little on the small side. How long are they there, Glenn? Just like a, a typical student that comes six in weeks. for a camp. Six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's a good bit of time. Yeah. Yeah, for an eight-year-old, that's a long time to be away from. long time. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. And then, the, and then during the year, they have a, um, they have a, a cre fully accredited high school for the performing arts. It's a boarding school. Okay. So that's much smaller. There's probably about 500, 400, 500 students that come during the school year. And there's about 2,500 students that come to camp. Well, Interlochen is, is a pretty special place. And, 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 uh, I, I do think I, I, I'm, I know I, for one, I'm, I'm so hopeful for the programs that are coming up. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Well, and again, big credit goes back to Matt because he had the foresight back in 2007 to make yeah. this happen. So, yeah. Okay, so Glenn, one of the things that we really like to talk about are differences in different instruments based on what that instrument is. You play a lot of alto stick and whatnot, but you know, didn't you recently get a, a new stick? I did. What was a little different about it that made you decide to buy it? Well, 
So actually, interestingly enough, the only brand new instrument that I ever ordered and purchased from Stick Enterprises was my Alto. Um, I had a 10-string one I started that I bought used. I bought it through Stick Enterprises, but it was used. And then the Grand Stick that I've played for years and years and years, I was going to buy a new graphite stick right when those came out. And I kind of waffled at the last minute and said, I might get a hardwood. And Emmett sent me a mail and said, well, if you were going to get a hardwood stick, what would your specs be? And I sent him to him and he said, what if I told you I had an instrument sitting right here that Bob just sent back to me that matched your specs exactly except for the inlays? And I said, I'll take it. So instead of waiting like several months for a stick, I decided I wanted a stick and had a brand new one like two days you got later. Bob, you got Bob so, Culbertson's yeah. chopping stick. So I was very fortunate. So, but I really wanted, but it was, it was a 34 inch instrument. You know, that was just something I wanted to get a new grand stick. I wanted to go through the process get it to specs exactly how I wanted, figure this might be the last one that I ever get. So, you know, I, I wanted to do it upright. So last year I started the process, you know, I had a nice little bonus come up one year and decided I was, I was going to get a new stick and I got a bamboo stick, talked a lot with Emmett. Emmett was heavily weighed in on my, my wood choice, but I got a new uh, medium bamboo grand stick with a stick up in it, which is still my favorite stick pickup of all time. And, uh, 36 inch scale linear inlays which my old one didn't have so and i wanted to get all the new stuff okay what kind of linear inlays did you get the uh black pearl Ooh. yeah very nice black pearl and the uh medium bamboo all right wow he's holding it up that's pretty so Beautiful. i like it yeah so it's a 36 inch which um it didn't really take me long to get used to because um that sort of extra fret that he has up by the nut also existed on my alto stick so hmm. that wasn't really a big deal for me to get used to it so i really kind of took to this almost immediately i mean i i'm not really finding myself wanting to go back to the old one much at all so and it has no midi in it for the first time that's another thing that i did for the first time so i just decided i'm not even going to order it i'm just going i'm going sans midi on the stick hey so no to go back to the stick, was what was the wood on the stick that you got? Remind me. It was a bamboo? It's a bamboo. Oh, okay. It's a medium bamboo. Yep. Got and that it. was kind of Emmett's, you know, em, Emmett kind of, he really likes the bamboos. I, I wanted to get something different. I've had two rosewood instruments and one paduke, which is also a darker wood. Right. So I kind of wanted to get lighter. So I was almost thinking of getting a maple instrument and, you know. This one looks a little more dirty, so this one's like a maple instrument that Bob owns. <laughs> uh, so you said yeah. the is this your first thirty-six inch scale instrument? Yeah, yeah. What do you notice about it in terms of feel, um, play, or sound? Not much. Um, the, well, the one thing I like about it is that I can get down low and I can play like the low C down here and the low G and the low and the the low the low D's and things like that. I can play them down here instead of always having to go up here to play them. Um, that's about it. You know, like I said, I, I was used to the extra fret cause I have it on my alto. So it wasn't a huge stretch for, for me to do that. So did you stay with the baritone melody then? Well, this is classic, classic grand. Hmm. So, which is basically baritone melody with an extra string. If you go back to your 34 inch scale, would you would you be able to go back and forth really fast, or would you? Uh, film? I think so. Yeah. No, I think I think I would. 
would you need to, to adjust the height of the instrument? Because well, I it's do. just yeah. this. If you lower it a little bit or raise it a yeah. little bit, then it's the exactly same things at the same place. Yeah. And, and that does make a difference. And I found that, yeah, when I got this one, I immediately made adjustments. And so, you know, so that basically this exactly. fret is at about the same place relative to my head. You know, on the old instrument, it was kind of like this, and I just got it up a little bit. So if I'm just kind of reaching without looking, my fingers hit the right notes. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I don't play standing up anymore, too. Because I found that if I went back and forth between standing up and sitting down, there was just enough of a difference in the height of my instrument where it kind of messed me up. So now I just sit all the time. Cool. I might stand up again one day. Hard to say. <laughs> I, I never could, could play standing up, so... I totally get it. It's a lot easier just sitting with yeah, instruments. Yeah, it is. Okay, so I'd like to know a little bit about your plans because I heard a rumor somewhere that you've got um, that you're in the middle of recording an album I of am. some sort. Yeah, yeah so yep. tell us about that. I am. Well, actually, it's interesting because I've been I've been um, getting into some electronics lately, and I've been kind of wanting to spend some time going down a road of doing some really sort of ambient electronic stuff and i realized that i can get so what's the word i'm looking for add sometimes that you know i have i have a bunch of tunes i don't have i don't have enough but i had a bunch of tunes for sort of the next record that had been recorded and i figured you know before i do another glenn and take off down a road and completely neglect everything that's sitting there let's just finish something so i'm like i got this record that's i got a lot of tunes recorded for let me figure out how many more tunes i need and let's just finish it mm-hmm. so i've really sort of poured myself back into that and i'm sort of mixing mixing some tunes that i recorded several years ago that had never been released adding a few new tunes on top of that and i'm hoping that you know in the next couple of months i'd be able to release something on Bandcamp that um you know, will be the culmination of that. So is a couple of months, two months, or is a couple of months, four months? Uh, you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> One year. I'm trying to get to commit. Does anyone I'd see I'd like to I'm say, I, I want to get it out. I want to get it out. I really do. So, you know, I'd like it to be a couple of months. No, are we talking about here? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it'd be, it'd be almost similar to, it, it, it has some similarities to the last record, but probably less, even less focused on stick than the last record. There's stick on all the tunes. Uh, that's actually not even true. But So how do we find your last record? I have a website that is 121normal.com. And if you go there, that has links to SoundCloud and Bandcamp and mm-hmm. all the other social media sites. And that record is actually available on Bandcamp if you want to download the digital version. Um, I think Stick Enterprises probably still has some physical versions laying around. They do. Or... I have a PayPal on my own site. I have physical versions laying around, although I'm four hours north of where they're sitting in boxes currently. <laughs> but uh, so, but so if the good. stuff's out there, I have a SoundCloud page where I put up stuff that this this was another thing that I found it hard to wrestle with. It's like you know SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Mm. How do you deal with all the different stuff? And I finally talked to a, a guitar player buddy that um, does fairly well for himself. And he used, he said he uses Bandcamp for albums that he puts out there for a fee or if you want to pay or whatever you want to pay. And then he basically uses SoundCloud for just the one-off things that he likes to throw out there 
that he never plans on putting on an album. So that's kind of where I'm heading to. So I have a handful of things on SoundCloud that are just out there for the taking. And then uh, Bandcamp's what I'm going to use for the album releases. So I have one album on Bandcamp right now. Hopefully that will be too soon. I already have the artwork. (laughs) I just need the tunes. All right. On the new album, will you be having other musicians that are joining you? Will no. it be most? No. no, it'll be this one. This one's going to be all me. Gotcha. Yeah. Good. Well, I I I can't wait to hear it, and um, I, when that does become available, I hope that you'll keep us all posted. Oh, as absolutely. Well on the stickest and on, yep. out on social media for sure. Yep. Yep. It'll be all over the place. All over the place where the stick players are. <laughs> I have to I have to qualify that. <laughs> I want to see it pop up like eight times the same, like in my, in my Facebook feed from like all eight different like feeds that I subscribe to. There you go. <laughs> it's ready. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking well, to you guys about your experience and what you've brought to the community and interlocking and your music. And uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. That would be great. All right. Well, for those of you that have been listening, thanks again for coming along and listening to us on Tap in Time. And we hope that sometime in the near future, you get the opportunity to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, before we go, let's call out the music we heard during this episode. The first song we heard was Sunday in Salt Spring, off Glenn's album 121 Normal. A little later on, we had A Thousand Words, also from 121 Normal. And then after that, we played a song off Glenn's upcoming album called Reich Dream. And right now, as we close out the episode, this is Raptors, off the album War of the Raptors by Glenn's band Coup d'Etoile. your comments you can contact us by email at tapintimepodcast at gmail.com 